Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming. We are thrilled that this um, penultimate of the Cambridge University series involves the very possibility that there is a place on Earth where you can go to study pterodactyl flight. We are delighted that this series, which has spanned everything from literature to medicine to archaeology to neuroscience to astrophysics, has so generously shared with everybody here some of the most extraordinary research and some of the most extraordinary study that takes place in the greatest university on Earth. We're particularly delighted today to introduce someone who's going to talk about literally how we come to be here. He's going to talk for 45 minutes and then take questions. Have a wonderful hour and please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Matt Wilkinson. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Uh, Thank you for coming inside in such a glorious, wonderful sunny day. I'm really privileged and honoured to be speaking to you today and thank you to Peter for that uh, wonderful and very generous uh, introduction. Uh, Yes, so first of all, actually, I have a a little question for you. Um, I would like you to think of an image, a picture, which to you sums up the process of evolution, apart from an image like this. So not not Darwin, but anything else. I'd like to kind of think of a picture which to you sums up the process of evolution. I'm hoping you've you've got something in mind. Um, Are any of you thinking of something like this? Excellent, excellent, yeah, so that is exactly what I was expecting. It is a very, very famous picture, or at least a kind of simplified version of a very famous picture by uh, Rudolf Zallinger uh, called The March of Progress. I have some issues with that term, but The March of Progress, which he prepared in 1965, uh, supposedly illustrating the literal rise of humanity from our bestial four-legged ancestors. Um, Not, I hasten to add, a chimp. We are not evolved from chimps. They are our cousins, uh, whereas this is illustrating our great, 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 seven million times uh, grandparents. But clearly it's been modelled rather closely on a chimp. And yet, it really does seem to capture this idea um, of the evolution of mankind, which is interesting, really, because, of course, when we talk about what makes us special as a species, now, we often think about our big brains, we think about our wonderful, sophisticated language, and yet here we see that all-important transition from ape to man being illustrated as a locomotory transition, a change in the way we move around. And I would argue that this is absolutely right, Um, that what we are is very much about how we move, that how we move determines why we are uh, the way we are. And not just us, by the way. The the point, the big argument I'm making in Restless Creatures, my book that's just out, is that locomotion is the dominant theme of the history of life, even though it's something that's often uh, taken for granted. And I hope to convince you over the next 40 minutes or so uh, that this argument may have some uh, validity. Um, Because I think there are several reasons why locomotion is so dominant. Uh, First of all, it's quite an uncontroversial one, really, is that how well you move, no, it's a very important life skill. Um, Those that move better are more likely to get the food within a given species. Uh, Those that move better are more likely to escape from predators. 
uh, those that are able to do all this very efficiently, so as economically as possible, are going to have more energy left over in order to, uh, to make babies. Um, and all of this means that uh, locomotion enjoys a very high status in the eyes of natural selection, if I can put it in those terms. That it's those who move better are, on average, the ones who are going to survive and are going to produce more offspring. And of course, if the characteristics that make them better movers are inherited by those offspring, the stage is set for that inexorable generation-by-generation generation improvement in the way a creature moves. Um, and one would imagine this would continue until a creature is moving in its environment about as well as it possibly can. So that's one reason. Uh, another reason why locomotion is so dominant, I think, is because it's, you know, moving well is quite a difficult thing to do. Uh, creatures that want to do so are up against the harsh realities of the laws of physics. Uh, which means that uh, the need to move well often really dictates the form and behavior of a living creature. And for us, I think this is incredibly useful because it means if we can understand something about how the physics of locomotion works, uh, we have at our grasp a wonderfully uh, powerful tool uh, for explaining why the living world uh, is uh, the way it is. And again, I hope to share with you some of that, that, that worldview uh, with you today. Um, but there's something else as well. Now, if, if, if uh, locomotion does have such a kind of strong effect on an organism's form, sometimes it happens that it will, something will happen that will open the door uh, to a new way of being. If it has such a sort of dominant effect on an organism's form. And we can see that very clearly uh, here. Uh, that once, uh, now, now that we are permanent bipeds, so we're always now walking around on two legs, of course our hands are free. They are freed from the compromising demands of four-legged locomotion. And of course, you don't need me to tell you how important that is. Now, we now have these fantastic manipulative tools, well, to make actual tools and to operate iPhones and do all the, you know, the fantastic stuff uh, we do with our hands, largely as a result of us becoming uh, bipedal. This sort of thing is going to happen uh, again and again and again. Um, now, it's worth pointing out at this juncture that, of course, chimpanzees, if we're going for the moment with this idea that our last common ancestor with chimpanzees was rather chimpanzee-like, chimpanzees can walk and move around on two legs. Um, but they don't do it very often, and there's a, a good reason for that. So I've got a little video here. So this is from a, a reserve in Kenya. So just you know, keep your eye on the, on the chimpanzee that's standing up there. Probably feeling a bit hard done by, not getting any food. And just have a look at the, the way it says, so it gets it in there, don't <laughs> Yeah, so notice the sort of quite stooped uh, posture it's adopted. Uh, it's all quite costly in terms of energy, so they don't do that very often. And of course, usually the way that chimpanzees move around is more like this, so uh, on four legs. Still quite an unusual way of walking around on four legs, it has to be admitted, so they're walking on their knuckles there rather than on the flats of their palms. And that's actually a really unusual way of moving, which I probably will uh, come to at some point. So there's a good reason why chimpanzees are like that. So they do sort of have this, this very sort of stooped uh, posture. Um, the reason comes, uh, you can easily tell, by looking at their skeleton. Uh, obviously, a chimpanzee skeleton and a human skeleton are very similar in many ways, but there are some really uh, significant differences as well. And I'd like to focus particularly on the pelvis, so I have a human pelvis here, not a real one, I hasten to add. Um, 
so that's what ours look like. This is a male pelvis, what it's worth. I did really hope to have a model chimpanzee pelvis to show you as well, but it has actually been held up at customs. Um, can't think why. Um, so you're just going to have to kind of um, imagine this in 3D. Um, so obviously our pelvis, so we're seeing that uh, roughly in that orientation there. Uh, and you'll notice, well, first of all, that the chimpanzee pelvis is much longer uh, than ours. Um, it's still quite broad, but very blade-like. We're seeing the edge of the blade there. They do have sort of quite broad uh, hip blades as well. Whereas ours, as you can see, uh, curve around to the sides. And this has a really important impact on how they move around. First of all, that length of the pelvis uh, means that the lower back of a chimpanzee is very stiff. Uh, it's quite straight. Uh, you'll notice in ours, we have that marked curvature uh, of the spine. Uh, this is why chimpanzees have to stand stooped like this. The, 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 uh, the vertebral column is kind of heading up at an angle. They can't sort of push their bum in like we can. Um, and if they're going to stand like that, they're going to have to bend the knees. Otherwise, they'll just sort of topple forwards. So that's why they're having to kind of adopt that rather costly stance. Because, of course, when we do this, well, we can just lock our legs, and I'm barely expending any energy on, energy on this at all. Whereas a chimpanzee is actually having to actively contract its muscles, burning through energy all the time just to keep uh, standing. Uh, there's also the issue of that curving around uh, of uh, the hip bones that we see in humans, but not in chimps. Um, there's a muscle uh, which runs from the, um, the hips there to the top of the femur. Um, nominally, they do this. Um, or this, uh, they are lifting the leg in that direction. Um, that's not usually how they're used. However, they're usually used to keep the, the torso nice and stable on one leg if we're balancing or as we're uh, walking. Um, if I didn't have these muscles, um, I would either, the, the body would sort of collapse onto that side or I'd have to just shift um, my body weight from leg to leg. And indeed, this is how chimps will generally walk. They're having to constantly shift the mass from one leg to the other. So again, it's very costly doing all this. It's called a Trendelenburg gait, for what it's worth. Um, we see a different version in humans as well, by the way. So if you ever look at catwalk models, uh, they're, often, they're doing something rather similar by not using uh, those muscles. But in a slightly different compensation, they twist the spine in the other direction. So uh, you can simulate it by um, um, crossing the legs over like that. Um, God knows how this looks on the screen. Um, and yeah, so similar kind of thing. Obviously, chimpanzees don't do that because their spine is not flexible enough. Um, so they have that, that sort of very costly side-to-side -side, uh, swagger. Um, so what happened on the, you know, the way from our last common ancestor with chimps to humans, as the kind of classic theory goes, is that the way we walk was greatly improved from this rather inefficient ch chimpanzee-like starting point. Um, so now that we're able to kind of tuck our bum in, uh, we can stand up nice and straight. Not only does that mean that we can stand uh, with very little expenditure of energy, but it also means we can walk with very, very little expenditure of energy. So effectively, when I walk, you know, if I'm starting off, I'm basically just falling forwards. Um, the leg then swings forward, largely under its own weight, so I'm not really having to do much there just to kind of get that leg forwards. And then the simple momentum of that fall is enough for me to vault uh, over the supporting leg. So all the while I'm walking, I'm barely contracting any muscles at all. Uh, this is really just a kind of continuous controlled fall. And again, remember how important the economy is uh, in um, effective uh, locomotion. Um, where are we? 
Yes, yeah, so there's all this sort of stuff that we... Oh, yes, I remember one thing I had to do more. So, yeah, so the, that, that sort of uh, rather efficient walking movement. Um, there is a possible problem here in that um, it doesn't really scale up in terms of speed very easily. Um, I mean, I could increase speed either by taking bigger steps or by taking more steps in a given time. Both of those are kind of disrupting the natural swing of the legs. So again, it's all adding to energy. But of course, we don't need to do that. We have another gear we can use if we need to go faster. We can launch into the air and go for a little uh, jog. And here again, we see another... God, don't be doing that on a day like this. Um, another key human feature which makes that process more efficient. So if, um, if you all will be aware of this, but up the back of your leg, so running from the heel, to the calf is our Achilles tendon. Uh, that spring loads uh, during our runs. So as we land on the foot, um, the ankle is bending a little bit. That loads that tendon, and then it springs us back off again. So again, it's an energy-saving measure, very effective uh, energy-saving measure in um, running. And that was really important, because by being able to run effectively, which chimpanzees really can't, um, it gave us access to a new food source. It meant that we could hunt uh, antelope, you know, gazelles on the plains of Africa. Um, probably wouldn't have been able to do it if, we hadn't, if it wasn't for another key um, sort of bonus of being bipedal. Um, obviously, these days, if you look at our hunter-gatherers today in Africa, they'll often use spears and bows and arrows and things to dispatch their prey. Um, that wouldn't have been the case um, a couple of million years ago. Um, so instead, it seems that our ancestors actually ran their prey to exhaustion, uh, kept running after them uh, persistently enough that eventually they'd just keel over as a, result of, um, as a result of heat stroke. And of course, the key thing there is to not die of heat stroke yourself. And this is where we see another bonus of being bipedal and upright, because of course, being bolt upright like this, if you imagine the equatorial African sun, um, is going to be more or less overhead for most of the time, so we're not going to be absorbing much heat energy uh, from the sun. Also, by being comparatively tall, um, we're exposed to the stronger wind currents that tend to uh, occur uh, the higher up uh, you are off the ground. Um, so, yeah, we are better at cooling ourselves uh, than our prey. So, now, again, an unusual benefit, bonus, of being uh, bipedal. But that was enormously significant, this ability to uh, hunt meat. Up until that point, we'd been subsisting on fruit and leaves and a relatively poor quality diet. Once we were able to hunt, the nutritional quality of our food shot up. Um, and there is a hypothesis called the expensive tissue hypothesis, uh, which posits that um, one, one, one effect of this is that we no longer had to dedicate so much resources to building capacious intestines and guts and instead could deliver those resources uh, to the brain. And there is an interesting correlation where about the time when we see these bipedal adaptations coming into our um, ancestors, that seems to correlate with the expansion of our brain. And there are other things as well. It's been argued that being hunters mean we had to cooperate more, and that might have influenced the evolution of language. So, but nevertheless, clearly, very, very significant change um, that I think largely made us who we are. You know, they gave us our big brains, uh, all sorts of other things. And a question may by now have occurred to you, um, that if chimps are so rubbish compared to us, why are they still here? This is one that I quite often get asked by people of a creationist bent. 
If we evolved from chimpanzees, and why are they still chimpanzees? Obviously, as I said, we did not evolve from chimpanzees, although the March of Progress does paint our last common ancestor as being rather chimpanzee-like. Um, it's actually a very easy question to bat away because, of course, chimpanzees are not just contending with moving around on the ground. Uh, they also have to move in the trees. So what we see in their form is very much a kind of compromised jack-of-all-trades um, solution. Uh, and there we see a chimpanzee doing a kind of typical thing. Um, note the, the sort of very sort of cocked posture of its leg um, as it's uh, climbing up that tree. This makes a lot of sense of that very long pelvis. Uh, with that long pelvis, you're able to attach big muscles, uh, which can give a very powerful push uh, to the leg. So one thing that chimpanzees are really ace at is climbing vertically up tree trunks. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of helps to explain. I mean, there are all sorts of other things that chimpanzees do much better than us in the trees, um, but that's the idea. Uh, which brings us to the kind of the classical story about how uh, human bipedalism evolved. So that if you go back sort of six or seven million years, which is about the time when humans and chimps uh, diverged, um, Africa was still you know, largely covered with, with rainforests. And uh, at that, you know, over the next few million years, um, it began to fragment. Uh, we began to see the rise of uh, savannas, of more plains-like landscapes. Um, and so as the story goes, the idea is that the chimpanzees are the ones whose an the, the, the chimpanzee ancestors stuck to the trees and stayed as they were, uh, whereas humans moved out into the savanna and then became very efficient, dedicated terrestrial uh, bipeds. Which is all well and good, but there is uh, something of a problem with this whole line of reasoning. And that's this assumption that if you're coming down out of the trees, then the way to become an efficient uh, terrestrial locomotor is to go bipedal. And of course, we have plenty of evidence that that's not necessarily the case at all. There are lots of really amazing quadrupedal terrestrial creatures, like this beautiful cheetah. Um, and from this perspective, now being on four legs offers a number of really, really important advantages. First of all, um, it means that the flexibility of the back uh, can be brought to bear. These quadrupeds, these four-legged things, have an extra gear, a third gear, uh, which is galloping, uh, where they're you know, essentially... You, know, you, you can see just how much that back is bending, so much that the, the hind legs come down in front of the forelegs. Um, they can extend their stride length to about seven metres, you know, way bigger than the length of the animal itself. Now, we can gallop, um, so I'm, I'm doing it now. This is a human gallop. Um, but it's not very effective because, unless my front, uh, front legs are on the ground as well, there's no way it's going to ever add to, um, to our stride length. So it's our least efficient gear, um, skipping in humans. has its uses. It's very good on the moon, uh, and it's very good if you need to go downstairs in a hurry. Um, but aside from that, uh, it's pretty rubbish. And so there we have... No, it's a, no, that raises the question, OK, well, why didn't we just refine our four-legged locomotion? Why do we go on to two legs? Um, and the question is given added force by the fact that if you look at some of our close relatives in the monkeys, that's exactly what they did. They also came down out of the trees, these are baboons, and they essentially became efficient four-legged terrestrial creatures. Um, with many of the, well, obviously they're not as good as cheetahs, but they have many of the benefits that cheetahs enjoy. So it's all getting a little bit curious until we look at some of our other ape relatives, particularly gibbons. So these are Southeast Asian uh, apes, the smallest of the apes and also our most distant uh, ape relatives, uh, obviously known for their extremely long arms and for their acrobatic arm under, their sort of underarm swing. 
Um, so I've got a, a little video here. So it's going to be quite difficult to see because it's quite, you know, it's taken from a distance away. Um, so, but keep your eye on it. There we go. So there it is, doing its fantastic um, underarm swing. This looks like so much fun. Wish I could do this. Um, in a minute, it's going to jump from tree to tree, and I want you to keep an eye on what it does next. You have to look very carefully. Okay, so keep your eye on it. And watch. Did you see that? So it's running on its two legs uh, when it's up in the trees. Um, it's not the only ape to do this. Orangutans do this sometimes as well. Um, and there is a kind of big school of thought now that actually thinks that we essentially went two-legged in the trees. Um, at the stage when, we went, when our ancestors went from being monkeys uh, to being apes. Um, and basically, it, 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 the, the reason why we did that was it's just a slightly different way of moving around in the trees. Monkeys tend to scamper on all four legs across branches, uh, whereas apes, it's more about clambering upright. So using their arms and their legs, to, supporting their weight from the, uh, with the legs from beneath, and then using the arms uh, from above. Probably in connection with an increase in size at this point. But yes, yeah, so we're getting a very different sort of idea now about how we humans became bipedal, that effectively it had already happened when we came down out of the trees, uh, and that we just merely refined something that our ancestors had already been able to do, uh, and that chimpanzees are actually really a bit more specialized than we thought. Um, all the changes that happened to their, their long pelvis um, and other you know, similar sorts of adaptations, that could easily have happened only on the chimpanzee line. So a very, very different um, uh, picture of how humans came to be, which means that that march of progress for all its iconic appeal might well be incorrect. Um, and it's not just, by the way, no, it's not just looking at gibbons that gives us this idea. We do have fossils which are telling something of the same story. So this is the fossilized hand um, of a creature called Ardipithecus. Um, so it's a fossil relative of humans that was found uh, in Ethiopia. Um, uh, in 1994, although it wasn't published until 2009. Uh, beautiful specimen. Uh, it's, it's very complete for a, for a sort of um, fossil uh, human uh, relative. Um, and its hands are very human-like in their overall proportions. Uh, now, this thing is about four and a half million years old, so it didn't live that long after the split between chimps uh, and humans. And it doesn't have any traces of the uh, adjustments that we see in chimpanzees, which are related to knuckle-walking. Uh, so the suggestion there is that you know, we are the conservative ones in many aspects of our anatomy, not uh, the chimpanzees. So yeah, but, but no, however you look at it, it's clear that it is you know, our uh, past as clamberers and crawlers in the trees uh, that helped to make us uh, who we are. And um, that's not the only example of that. So this is a loris. Hope you can see that all right. So this is a prosimian, so it's related to uh, lemurs. Um, I just want you to look at its hands um, and look at those opposable thumbs. Now, opposable thumbs are often held up as a big human thing, again, sort of instrumental in you know, what we're able to do with our hands. And yet here we have really quite a distant relative uh, that's using them purely for the purposes of, of locomotion. Uh, that it seems to be something of a specialist on crawling around rather narrow branches where claws are not going to uh, uh, do much good. 
Um, and there seems to be a big thing in the primate groups, the primates being your lemurs, your lorises, your monkeys, your apes. Uh, or the, the, the opposable thumb seems to have evolved uh, very near the base of that uh, big group. Um, which not only meant that we have now inherited the opposable thumb, which is such a big deal for us, uh, but it also has another, probably slightly less advantageous um, consequence. Because it's very unusual. Now, the primates are a very, um, they're a classical tree-dwelling group. Um, that's where they're most comfortable, as a rule. Um, but there are no gliding primates. This is weird, because gliding has evolved many, many times in a whole range of different tree-dwelling groups. Obviously, there we have a flying squirrel. Uh, flying squirrels have themselves evolved multiple times. Um, we've got a, a gliding lizard there. Um, all sorts. We've got gliding frogs, we've got gliding snakes, even. Um, there are marsupial versions of the same thing. So it's, it's a very sort of common path uh, if you're a tree-dweller. Um, and the reason is you know, fairly straightforward, that if you imagine you're a, you know, living up in a tree and you need to get from that tree to that tree, I probably should have used the, the trees there, never mind. Um, uh, let's say there's sort of fruit, you no know, nice juicy fruit over there. Um, we're obviously faced with a bit of a problem about how we're going to go there. Now, one solution would be to go all the way down across the ground and then up the next tree. But that's going to cost an awful lot of energy. Not only, I mean, obviously, it costs a lot of energy in the climbing, um, but also rather dangerous uh, to be uh, crawling along the floor where there may be lots of predators like tigers and the like. Um, so this, it is supposed, is the impetus for the development of uh, gliding adaptations, where now, if we imagine something like a squirrel starts to develop a little flap of skin and get a bit of lift uh, as it jumps uh, off a branch, then rather than you know, falling straight down to the ground, uh, it'll be able to glide. Now, its first efforts are going to be pretty rubbish. Uh, it's going to be going at a fairly steep angle, so it's still going to have to climb a little bit, but it can avoid the ground. And the idea is that then, as gradually those flaps of skin get bigger and bigger and bigger, uh, the angle of the glide gets more and more shallow, um, so saving more and more energy, and you know, this is how we think these gliding adaptations appeared. Of course, eventually, of course, if you're very lucky, uh, you might be able to start flapping those wings, and then you won't have to glide at all. You'll be a proper powered flyer. And that really is an amazing way of moving around. It's very cheap uh, in terms of how much energy it costs to go a given distance. It's very safe. It's very fast. It really is um, unparalleled in terms of locomotory effectiveness. Trouble with us primates, though, is because we have these opposable thumbs, and because we're pretty good, uh, moving around on very narrow branches, of course, it means we have another way of getting from tree to tree. We don't have to go, you no know, jump from trunk to trunk. We can simply use those fine branches uh, to go from canopy to canopy. Um, obviously, we're not alone in being able to do this. Some of the squirrels, no, no, plenty of time will do this. But I think because we primates are so good at uh, moving in these very sort of fine branches at the edges of canopies, it meant that there was never any evolutionary incentive for us to start down the gliding path. Uh, so it means that, that opposable thumb is something of a mixed blessing. Um, now it might have given us this you know, the fantastic ability to interact with our environment, but it closed the door uh, to flight for us. Um, with birds, of course, it was wholly different. Uh, I imagine a lot of you are now familiar with the idea that birds are modified dinosaurs. A uh, very popular idea. Um, specifically, you know, it's dinosaurs like Velociraptor. We're pretty close to birds. I imagine you all have a pretty good picture about what Velociraptor was like, thanks to Jurassic Park. 
Probably rather incorrect. We now are absolutely sure that Velociraptor was covered in feathers. Um, likely had miniature wings. Um, I'm increasingly of the opinion that this thing may have been secondarily flightless, actually, or at least that its ancestors were gliders. So very, very different from what we see in Jurassic Park. We're all really annoyed that Jurassic World didn't, didn't sort this out. They're still going with the old version, and it's very disappointing. Um, this is always a problem. When, when we first drew this link between dinosaurs and birds, um, how they evolved flight was always a big issue, because, of course, when looking at these you know, two-legged carnivorous uh, dinosaurs, um, these are obviously ground dwellers. Now, they're they're fast-running terrestrial predators. Does that mean that flight could evolve from the ground up? If that's the case, why hasn't it happened more often? Um, no, flight is such a fantastically brilliant thing to do. If you can evolve from the ground up, everyone should be learning how to fly. It's an amazing thing to be able to do. Um, I'm not going to spend too long on this, because uh, we don't have an awful lot of time. Um, I wouldn't say that the argument has now been comprehensively settled. I think that it rattles on. Um, but discovery, the discovery of this fossil has changed uh, the field enormously. So this is something called Microraptor, uh, found in China um, back in the early 2000s. Uh, like Archaeopteryx, it has preserved feathers, so it's a very beautifully preserved fossil. Um, so just pointing out the, um, in the blue there, those are the feathers on its arms. But and you may have already spotted this, if you look at its legs, also has feathers uh, there. Um, quite extensive, clearly aerodynamically competent flight feathers on its legs. Uh, so this thing had four wings. Um, and most of us believe that it was a glider, that it lived in trees uh, and used those four wings to glide, very much like the dinosaur version of a flying squirrel. Um, so no, it seems that the pathway to flight in the birds was actually rather similar to what we've already seen, uh, which is handy. Okay, going to step back now and widen the focus considerably. We've been focusing rather too much on our own group. Now, to try and take in the entirety of the animal kingdom, um, as you do, um, here are you know, a few representatives. Um, obviously, a slug, a ragworm, beautiful thing, uh, and a mantis shrimp. Um, so, representatives of some of the larger uh, animal groups. Um, I'm just really going to pop, pop that slide up, really, uh, as a way of illustrating uh, that we don't really seem to have very much in common, the four of us. Um, no, well, I don't know, maybe <laughs> you think that I do. Um, no, we are clearly, you know, these are very, very distinct uh, body plans. But I would argue that this is really only taking a superficial uh, look at those uh, three creatures, well, four, if you include myself. Um, that actually, fundamentally, we're built along very, very similar lines. And it's all to do, again, with the evolution of locomotion. So we're going to now look at the blueprint uh, of these animals. So first of all, well, we all, all our bodies are arranged a about a, a single long axis. So for me, it's going down that way. Uh, for all those other guys, it's running sort of roughly in that direction. Obviously, I have become upright, so that's why there's that difference there. Um, the front and back are distinct. Uh, whereas left and right are roughly the same. These things are pretty much uh, symmetrical about that axis. Um, and they're distinct, though. Those front and back ends are distinct in a certain way. So first of all, uh, it's at the front end that we find the mouth uh, in all of these guys, uh, and also the long-range sense organs, the eyes, and in that case, the antenna, in my case, uh, the nose. Um, at the other end, the back end, we have the anus. So I thought I didn't want to show you too much uh, realism. Um, 
And if you look on the inside as well, quite a lot, a lot of the time we have um, a nervous system arranged roughly like what we see in us, with a concentration of nerve cells at the front, uh, and then a long cord, or perhaps a couple of long cords, relaying information from the front uh, to uh, the rest of the body. Um, and the reason is, really, again, it's all to do with locomotion, because this blueprint is a fantastic way of reliably producing very effective locomotory bodies. Because um, if you think about it, if you're moving consistently in one direction, obviously that end is going to be encountering the environment first, um, and it's going to be encountering food first, so it makes absolute sense to put the mouth at that end. Um, also, given that that's the end that's pointing in the direction of motion, of course you're going to put the long-range sense organs there. That makes absolute sense. And if you don't want to be continually moving through your own poo, uh, good idea to have the anus uh, at the other end. Um, so it, all of this makes a lot of sense from, a, from a, uh, the point of view um, of locomotion. Uh, also, in terms of that brain and what's going on with the nervous system, of course, we need to gather the information from the senses sort out what's important, and then relay it to the, the propulsive machinery. Um, so that's why we have that concentration of nerve cells at the front. It's processing the information from the senses. Uh, which means, by the way, that the brain is really for locomotion. Uh, yes, we may think of it as the thinking organ, uh, but first and foremost, it is the computer to drive uh, the locomotion of the animal body. Uh, something else we often find in these, uh, as part of this sort of fundamental blueprint, um, is the repetition of units, some propulsive engine uh, running all the way down uh, that main axis. So sometimes it's in the form of legs, although not always, as we'll see. Um, so obviously the arthropods, the millipedes, centipedes, um, the mantis shrimp, the crustaceans, um, illustrate this uh, very clearly. Um, I hope you can now see why left and right need to be symmetrical. Now, if we had more legs on one side than the other, then these animals would be going round and round in circles all the time. Um, so this is all very, very important. Um, and, but there's another kind of benefit to having this sort of repetition in terms of the way it's uh, used. So I just want to kind of quickly show you a millipede, and just to kind of notice how it's using its legs. It's effectively running them in a Mexican wave. A uh, metachronal wave, to give it the technical term. But yes, it's a wave of movement that runs from one end to the other. Um, this is what you can do if you've got multiple legs um, all sort of stacked up one behind the other. And it's a very efficient way of moving. There we have it now, efficiency again. Economy is all important. Uh, because it means that the bulk of the body is moving extremely smoothly. It's not coming to a halt and then having to start up again. Only the legs are having to do that. So it's a very, very efficient way of moving a body forwards. And this way of moving these, um, these sort of multiple pairs of legs is extremely common uh, in the animal kingdom. And you don't just see it on terrestrial guys like millipedes. We see it in a lot of uh, crustaceans as well. Indeed, in fact, no, we do it too. I mean, it's less obvious for us because we've only got two pairs of legs. But I'm moving my hind legs, then four legs. Hind legs, then four legs. So I'm also running my legs as a Mexican wave. It's a really fundamental way of using um, your propulsive machinery. Uh, so much so that when you look at human rowers, um, curiously, we always use a synchronous beat of the oars. And I do wonder, um, I'm particularly thinking of the head to the Olympics, whether there might be uh, some benefit by taking a leaf out of the animal kingdom's book. Now, whether if instead of moving the oars synchronously, we moved them one after the other so that we had a much smoother progression of that boat. Oh, who knows the medal hall that could await us, perhaps. 
Now, you could argue that it's going to be just unworkable. And we're individuals, so how are we going to kind of coordinate the activities of that finer tolerance? Which is all very well, but there is actually a precedent for that in the animal kingdom as well. Um, you may not be familiar with this uh, creature. This is the thing called a siphonophore. Um, you will be familiar with one member of this group, so the Portuguese man of war is in this group. Often thought of as a jellyfish. Uh, it isn't. Uh, Portuguese man of war is not a jellyfish. In fact, it's not a single animal at all, as is that not also a single animal. Uh, so they're colonies, colonies of little jellyfish-like creatures, all coordinating their activities. Um, and I'd like particularly to notice those you know, the, the jellyfish-looking things stacked along their main axis. Uh, unfortunately, I couldn't find a video of these things, though they're fairly you know, surreptitious. Um, but they will operate these in a Mexican wave, exactly as you would expect, exactly as no, it's going to return the maximum efficiency. Uh, they have the advantage over humans because they can hook their nervous systems together. A very extraordinary sort of um, uh, design that we almost basically have a colony-wide nervous system. Quite extraordinary uh, set of animals. Yes, as I said earlier, so it's not just um, the legs which are necessary, the repeated units. We have other examples of that as well. Sometimes it's as simple as a whole set of muscles, um, muscle blocks which run from one end of the animal uh, to the other. Um, and uh, this is a good old friend, the earthworm. Hoving into view very soon. Hopefully, there it goes. Um, and you'll notice that it's alternately lengthening parts of the body and then bunching them up. Um, first of all, I'd just like to point out that once again, we have a Mexican wave of activity of those, uh, um, of those muscles. Um, this is a really common way that invertebrates move, if they're soft-bodied and don't really have legs, is by the alternate contraction, bunching up of the body and then lengthening. Uh, the idea is that when the body is short and fat, um, they pop anchors down and then use that as a kind of stable base to shoot the front end of the animal forwards, and then they contract uh, the rest to catch up. And then they'll kind of carry that on going. Uh, it's very much the same technique we use to pass food down our guts, by the way. Um, yeah, so that's a no, very, very common means of movement. And again, it uses Mexican waves. Another example of this repeated um, um, structures that run down the main axis is, of course, our vertebrae. Now, we vertebrates do exactly the same sort of thing. And we also have muscle blocks, which also run uh, more or less from sort of front to back. Um, this is a rather curious adaptation, because if, no, what we have every reason to believe um, that our invertebrate ancestors moved roughly like the earthworm, using that kind of series of kind of bunching up of the body and, and, and lengthening. By putting in a string of vertebrae, so a string of vertebrae, uh, they can bend, but they can't shorten. So that should mean that that old method of movement doesn't work, and indeed it doesn't. But what it means is that if muscles contract in that sort of fore to aft direction, and you've got this long rod effectively which can't shorten, then rather than the whole body telescoping, the body will bend. Uh, and this is primarily how vertebrates move, by the, you know, the, the uh, alternating contraction of muscles on one side, then the other, to throw the body into an S-shaped uh, curve. And we can see it uh, demonstrated lovely by this, wonderfully by this mako shark. Mako yeah, shark in a marina. So probably got a bit lost. Um, but just you can see that sort of S-shaped wriggle um, that this thing is using to move around. And it is a very, very efficient way of moving underwater. Effectively, what's happening is every time the body curves to one side, it sucks uh, water uh, into that trough. And then as long as the wave then moves backwards, it's then able to take that water and throw it 
into the wake. So effectively, we have here a continuous form of jet propulsion, which is very, very effective um, at moving around uh, underwater. But it has a kind of unexpected bonus if you start playing around with fins uh, for stabilization purposes. This is a bamboo shark. Oh, there we go. And as you can see, it's using its fins to walk on the seabed. Um, it's only able to do that because of the, that lateral bending uh, that the body is doing. Effectively, what that, the effect of that is to increase the stride length of those fins. So here we have, again, it's like, it's like the kind of the rise onto two legs opening the door to you know, tool use and that sort of thing. Um, the evolution of underwater propulsion in the, ver in, in the sort of fish-like vertebrates seems to have opened the door to walking uh, on the seabed. And of course, we know where that eventually led. Um, if we look at things like salamanders and lizards, that's pretty much exactly how they're moving around uh, on land and probably how the first terrestrial vertebrates moved around on land, still using essentially the fish method of propulsion, but now in a terrestrial context, uh, just because of that fortuitous crossing over that could happen. Um, uh, we have these lovely fossils. So this is a fossil called Acanthostega. Uh, you can't see it very clearly, but over there we have a set of bones which are its limb bones. So this has already converted its fins into limbs. It's 365 million years old, uh, found in Greenland of all places. Um, and interestingly, it has gills, internal gills. Uh, so it appears to have been a completely aquatic creature. Um, and this was the context in which the fins became limbs. So very much this sort of, a sort of bamboo shark-like uh, starting point. So I hope you can now appreciate that um, locomotion has had a really sort of dominant impact on the evolution of the animal kingdom, from our fundamental blueprint right up uh, to the, very, the specifics of how we became, how the human species became what we are. Um, but I will also argue that locomotion has dominated the evolution of plants as well. Now, at this point, you might think I'm kind of crazy. Surely, of course, plants don't move. How could they be dominated by locomotion? But... Of course, they're still going to have to get their offspring away. Um, now, a plant can't just drop its seeds right down, otherwise its offspring are going to become entrenched rivals of it. It needs to get its the next generation as far away as possible. Um, the sperm, usually in the form of pollen, needs to get to the egg. So we still have this need for things to be transferred, to be transported. And I would argue that this need has really dominated uh, plant evolution. And all sorts of ways in which it's happened. I mean, there we have a giant sequoia. Um, from the Botanic Gardens in Cambridge, so a lovely place to visit if you ever find yourself down that neck of the woods. Um, and simply by being tall, of course, it means if you're dropping your seeds or your pollen, um, then as long as there's a decent wind, uh, you stand much greater chance of that next generation getting as far away as possible. So height, I would argue, is no, at least partly a response to the need for the dispersal of the offspring. Uh, sometimes we see some really stunning adaptations in how seeds get transported in the wind. I'm sure you're all familiar with sycamore seeds, the, the sort of helicopter-like action uh, that keeps them in the air for as long as possible, so the, the wind has as much chance as possible of moving it away from the parent plant. Um, I've got another one here. Um, so this beautiful object is the seed of the Javan cucumber. Um, it's actually a, a sort of liana, and these things are dropped um, from open-bottomed husks uh, up in the canopy. Um, and it really is the most magnificent uh, gliding seed. Hopefully it will work. There we go. Whoops. Yeah, so really sort of beautiful, soft, 
um, glide that this thing does. Uh, use of the wind is not the only way that the plants can get their seeds away or get, get what needs to be transported away from them. Um, of course, animals are around on land as well, so you can always make use of them. Um, notably with pollination, of course, it's all very obvious, but flowers are visited by bees, they will take the pollen uh, to another plant. So effectively, what's happening is that thanks to the presence of that flower, uh, the bee becomes an extension of the plant. It becomes the plant's legs and wings and eyes and, a, and enables that plant to deliver its sperm exactly uh, where it needs to go. Um, this works for seeds as well, although because seeds are usually quite a bit bigger than pollen, um, usually a different sort of animal is necessary, um, which gives us a reason why fleshy fruit evolve. This, of course, is not appealing to an insect anymore, uh, but usually to a vertebrate, a much, much larger animal. Uh, the idea being that we eat this, take the seeds away, and then poo them out somewhere else. So once again, um, we see basically with the flowers and these fleshy fruit, these are locomotory adaptations in plants. Now, the flower is the equivalent of an animal's legs in a kind of strange, cryptic way. Um, and I'd just like to kind of finish, really. Uh, so, you know, plants and animals, we are kind of Johnny's come lately in the grand scheme of things. Um, you know, large scales, the visible life forms, you know, forms that can be visible with the naked eye. Um, we cropped up about 1.2 billion years ago. Uh, obviously, the history of life is 4 billion years old. And for all that time, uh, the world was dominated by single-celled creatures like these bacteria here. Um, that's in a bit of congealed coffee, for what it's worth. So, um, you know, just saying. <laughs> Might want to throw that coffee away. Um, and really, I mean, if you want to see the real restless heart of the world, you need to look at the single-celled creatures. Um, very, very few of them are not motile, do not kind of move around. And again, it's just for exactly the same reasons as we've been seeing. It's that, that because those that can move, they're the ones that are going to be able to find their way to those rich patches of nutrients. They're the ones that are going to reproduce more. Um, now, much is often made of the origin of the core biochemistry of life. So DNA, RNA, proteins, all that kind of stuff. And rightly so. Astonishing transition in this universe of ours that life kind of appeared. Um, but I would say that a living world that stopped at biochemistry uh, would barely justify the name. Uh, it would really just be unusually complex chemistry. It was only with the evolution of locomotion that life really came of age, for the simple reason that once creatures started moving around, they started to encounter each other, uh, which means that this is where we start to see pred uh, predators and prey. Uh, sex and symbiosis, competition and competitors. It was at this point uh, that the living world started taking on uh, its essential character. Um, and I'd just like to kind of leave you with one final thought, so we're not going to be able to kind of do that a little bit now. Um, which, of course, is that the wonderful thing is that we, we, we've, you know, since that point that, that, that locomotion first evolved, we've had billions of years of evolution. And a lot of that has been essentially a locomotory arms races. You know, um, various groups going on their various adventures, unlocking doors to certain pathways unknown and sort of new realms unknown, like the vertebrates going from water to land. Um, and what's wonderful is that that four billion year history is essentially still written in our current bodies. Um, and I think this kind of offers a wonderful way of kind of getting in touch with our ancient ancestral past. So, for instance, think about it. Every time I grip something, so when I'm picking up this glass of water, 
I am reenacting the gripping of a branch that was done in the very first uh, uh, primates. Every time I twist my back from side to side, I'm reenacting the first wriggles that our vertebrate ancestors pulled hundreds of millions of years ago. Every time I swallow anything, um, the contractions of my gut are recalling what our ancient invertebrate ancestors uh, were doing. And I think this offers a really potent, it's a very beautiful testament uh, to the connection we share uh, with the rest of the animal kingdom, which I think at this, in this day and age is, is no bad thing to cultivate. Uh, so thank you very much for listening. I'm now um, very happy to take your questions. Thank you. Oh, we have one here. Thank you, sir. Oh, thank you. Uh, I believe I'm right in saying that um, whales have small legs within their body. Did they ever progress to actually walking about anywhere? No, they don't. No, so that's an interesting point. So, yes, we often find often a remnant of the pelvis uh, in, these, in these whales. So, yes, so that, that's really just a kind of... Well, it's usually explained as a throwback of their terrestrial past. Um, as you mentioned that, I also feel I had to mention the fact that whales have horizontal tails, which is another throwback to their terrestrial mammalian past. If you recall that cheetah, um, the, when uh, mammals first evolved from uh, the reptiles, um, there was a transition from that side-to-side -side movement of the spine to more up-and-down movement of the spine. And it's, it's very, very obvious in cheetahs, but it's a, it's a real sort of mammalian-wide uh, thing. And, of course, that means that when they go back into the water, and need to then use their movements to uh, cause that jet of water backwards, they're going to have to develop a horizontal tail to capitalise on that. So that's another remnant of their ancestral terrestrial past. Thank you. Yes, go ahead. Um, what would have made um, anim animals from different species starting to work together? Oh, uh, so symbiosis. Yeah, really interesting question. And I, I, it's... I think it's always worth emphasising this because it's so easy. Now, we have the talk of the selfish gene, for instance, that we think of life as being this cutthroat competitive world, that it's all about individuals out for themselves. And although that is kind of true, I mean, the genes are always out for themselves as such, uh, quite often those needs will be better met by different organisms cooperating than by uh, fighting uh, together. So, uh, well, I mean, with the pollination, for instance, that's a really nice example of that. Uh, so from the plant's perspective, it needs to get its pollen to another plant. From the insect's perspective, it's just after nectar or, or pollen. But in this case, it's needs, the, the needs of both are best served by that cooperation. Now, they might still want to kind of take a bit more than their fair share. Uh, you do get nectar robbers, for instance, who try to take a little bit more nectar without taking the pollen. Uh, sometimes you get deceit pollination where a plant... Um, might resemble a female of the species, for instance, and, the, and the, uh, an insect comes along and tries to mate with it. So it doesn't get any reward, but it still takes the pollen away. So there, there are, there, there's often sort of subversive nature to this kind of cooperation. Um, but yeah, so it, it, the cooperation is common just because very often that's the best way of putting more offspring into the next generation. But yeah, it's a really good point to make, so thank you for that. Uh, I've got a question up there. Yes. Lady in the blue. Um, for more sedentary creatures, is there mm. any sign that they revert back to having a less defined head and um, limbs? Yeah, there really is. So, uh, yeah, again, thank you for that question. So, um, 
the echinoderm group. So these are the starfish and sea urchins, uh, sea cucumbers. Um, these seem to kind of fly in the face of everything I've been saying. So, um, I mean, <laughs> they, I, mean I perhaps shouldn't have picked that because that's a very tortuous history. So you now we have now the starfish. It does move around. Um, but it doesn't have a head end, doesn't have a sort of that, that long axis, it doesn't use you know, Mexican waves or anything, and it's breaking all the rules. Um, but it seems that the reason it's, a, it, it, it's doing that is because in the very distant past, its ancestors were, were sessile. And this is something we often see in animals, groups which kind of turn away from locomotion, at least as adults, is that they, they lose the brain, they lose those traces of symmetry which, which make locomotion, uh, which are so obvious in, in the uh, locomotory animals. Um, I mean, there's a group called the sea squirts, which I think they made this point really rather wonderfully. So sea squirts are our closest, the vertebrates' closest invertebrate relatives. Um, and they have a central nervous system. They have a spinal cord. It's a very simple one, but they've got a spinal cord. They have what seems to be something rather like the precursor of our backbone, but only when they're larvae. And as larvae, they look like little tiny little fish as they're swimming around. Um, and they've got a little mini brain to kind of run all this stuff. Um, and when the time comes, they swim down to the seafloor, uh, glue themselves in place, and then digest their brain. Um, because if they're not going to move anymore, they don't need the brain anymore. So it makes a really kind of good point that the brain uh, is for locomotion. But note that in all of these sedentary animal groups, there still has to be some locomotion at some point in the life cycle, just as there is uh, with plants. So it's, uh, none, none of the animals have been able to turn their back on it completely. But yeah, thank you for that. I've got a question just down here. Thanks. Hello. Um, how long have Homo sapiens been on the planet, and are we still evolving? Oh, great questions, great questions. Um, so, the earliest appearance of what we tend to call anatomically modern humans, which you probably would put in Homo sapiens, uh, is about 160,000 years old. So that's from uh, Africa. So actually fairly recent. Um, of course, we've got a problem there about how we draw boundaries around species in a kind of continuous lineage, because no, we're not going to get one species giving birth to another species. So it's always going to be quite fuzzy around the edges, and it's quite arbitrary, really, about just... It comes down to how you're defining it. So you can kind of draw the lines wherever you like. Um, what was the other question? Are we still evolving? Are we still evolving? Yeah, yeah. So this is often... Uh, a question that's often asked. Um, and one might... Imagine as living creatures, well, of course, we're still evolving. Um, the only reason why we might think we're not um, is because of our culture. So, obviously, the last few hundred years, particularly, well, last few thousand years, um, have seen the evolution of our culture. Um, and culture has this effect of buffering us against the natural world. I mean, we can see this now. Now, I mean, obviously, it's a very nice warm day, but it quite often isn't in Wales, as I gather. Um, and really, it's only thanks to our buildings and our clothes that we're able to survive at these latitudes. We don't have fur coats like the wild animals that live here. Um, so that's the idea, is that if, we are, that if our culture is kind of insulating us from the effects of natural selection, there's no selective pressure anymore, then there can be no further, at least no further adaptive evolution. There can still be what's called genetic drift, and that seems to have been very, very important in human evolution, because uh, partly because of our wide geographical spread, and you're often looking at quite small uh, kind of colonizing groups. Uh, so that's just the sort of point where you often get genetic drift and uh, quite a lot of divergence that way. Um, having said all that, uh, we shouldn't really, I think, think of culture as just being 
um, something which defends us against uh, selective pressures. Quite often, our culture can raise its own selective pressures as well. Um, the classic case is uh, persistent lactose tolerance. Um, no, ancestrally, we were all lactose intolerant as adults. Uh, but in certain groups around the world, of course, we have the cultivation of dairy cattle and the drinking of milk into adulthood. And these are the groups where we start to see the evolution of persistent lactose tolerance. So that's an aspect of evolution which is now caused by our culture. Um, all sorts of other examples. I mean, a lot of our you know, big epidemic diseases, for instance, are the result of culture because they result from the domestication of animals. So things like tuberculosis and measles and rubella, uh, these come from livestock. So the only reason we've been exposed to these diseases is because of culture. And of course, um, one of the reasons why whenever Europeans meet uh, indigenous peoples, why, often why we tend to kind of wipe them out, has a lot to do with our diseases that we have now adapted to, but they, of course, haven't. So that's another aspect of evolution which is continuing. Um, yeah, so I mean, I could go on, but it's... Um, we are, I think, still evolving, but in a rather unusual way. Oh, the red light is on. Um, so I think we perhaps have time for one more question. Perhaps over there. Thank you. Hi there. Yeah. I was just wondering um, about the bipedalism. You said yeah. it, it's an extremely efficient way of moving. And I was just thinking about kangaroos. Yeah. So they're slightly different in terms of their alternating locomotion from what you were saying as sort of the body plan. Yeah. And I also wonder why is our form of bipedalism not more common in terms of evolving a number of times? Yeah, no, another fantastic question, so thank you. Um, yeah, so kangaroos, in some ways, are extremely unusual. Obviously, that, that sort of bipedal hop, um, and extremely efficient in kangaroos. I mean, they, they have... Uh, so, I mean, our Achilles tendon is not a patch on theirs. They've got this you know, great rope-like tendon that runs down the back of their, their very long legs. Um, or with a very long foot at the end of it. Um, so it means that they, know they, they can increase speed, often without incurring any extra energy cost. It's you know, really quite extraordinary. Um, but in many ways, what they're doing is, is kind of more the classic version of bipedalism, where the spine is still pretty much horizontal. That's what birds do. Um, it's what a lot of things like jerboas and jackrabbits do. Uh, and of course, they are two-legged hoppers. Um, yes, yeah, so I think it's, it is weird. The bi the humans really are pretty much unique in our absolute bolt-upright uh, stance. Um, we're not absolutely unique. Um, I would say that penguins may be, obviously, very different in many ways, but they have a similar kind of idea, obviously, just much, much shorter legs. Um, but I would say it's because of our unique locomotory history. It's, it's because of our, our tree-dwelling ancestry, our particular kind of tree-dwelling ancestry, with the move from that monkey-like scampering to the upright clambering, and then coming down out of the trees uh, from that starting point. Um, I mean, if I were to give it a very, very short explanation, that, I think, would be it. Um, that there is no other example of that happening, uh, of that particular sequence of events, which is why we're so unique. So thank you very much. Um, so yes, that's, it. Sorry, that's the last question. Thank you very much for your attention.